Welcome back to the More Money Podcast. My name is Jessica Morehouse and I host this show. And this is episode 345 of the podcast. And we're talking investing this episode and you're going to love this episode. We go deep. If you're really into this stuff, you're going to love this episode. I've got Myron Genick on the show. He is the CEO and co-founder of Evermore Capital, which is a new Canadian asset management company that introduced the first and only target date ETF series aimed at retirement in Canada, uh, which are called Evermore Retirement ETFs. Um, The Evermore Retirement ETFs are a low-fee, one-stop solution created specifically to make investing for retirement easy and more accessible for everyday Canadians. And uh, we're going to get into this uh, because this is a very specific type of investment product. Uh, I really like it because it has been around uh, in the U.S., it's a bit more accessible there because they just have more stuff there, right? Um, but uh, target date funds, like typically mutual funds, they've been around in Canada for a while, but not usually accessible for just individuals like you and me who want to invest. Usually they're only available or accessible through like your defined contribution pension plan or group RRSP. Um, but now you can do it on your own. So that's that's very exciting. I mean, I thought the development or that the launch of asset allocation ETFs a few years back was like groundbreaking. This is kind of that next level to make investing even easier because investing should be easy. It should not be so hard. You shouldn't have to feel like, oh, I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I'm just going to hire that advisor or this wealth management firm to do it for me. I, I, you know, I just can't handle it. You can't handle it. You can, because once you understand how it all works, not only will you just be a more confident and savvy investor, and I think we all should be because it's our money and no one cares more about our money than we do, um, though that advisor definitely cares about your money in terms of how much it'll make them. Um, but it's it's really not rocket science. Like, it doesn't have to be. Um, I, I always tell people, investing can be as complex as you want it. But honestly, most of that complex stuff, you don't need to touch it. You don't need to bother with learning how to stock pick or how to use, you know, uh, call options and derivatives. You don't have to touch any of that crap. Honestly, if you want to just build wealth to reach your goals like retirement, something like a ETF, an index-based ETF will do the trick. But with that, <laughs> there's still some things that, you know, we need, we need, right? You can't just invest in one ETF and good to go. Though, maybe with uh, these target date ETFs, you can because it has a bunch of different ETFs in there. You still need to put your eggs in lots of different baskets. You need to make sure you're diversified and you're really clear on where your money's going. And so we're going to talk about all of this in this episode. So you're going to love it. But before I get to that interview with Myron, here's just a few words I want to share about this season's podcast sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is supported by Desjardins. Does your financial institution share your values? Because Desjardins is about more than just money. They are on a mission to enrich people's lives and improve the economic and social well-being of Canadians everywhere. Desjardins' main goal as a cooperative is to support its members and make a positive impact on their communities by providing exceptional customer care, offering a variety of financial services, and above all, listening to its members. They've also been at the forefront of sustainable investing as one of the first financial institutions to offer responsible investment portfolios. To learn more about Desjardins and how they're a cooperative making a difference, visit Desjardins.com. 
Welcome, Myron, to the More Money Podcast. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Thanks, Jessica. So happy to be here. Absolutely. So uh, we've got a lot to talk about. I'm really excited to have you on the show because I, I, you know, did a, a video about uh, these uh, target date ETFs that Ever, Evermore has, and I get lots of great questions. So I've, I've got a lot of questions to ask you <laughs> that people want to know. Um, but before we really dive in, tell me a little bit about yourself. You're the CEO and co-founder of Evermore Capital. What, uh, you know, inspired you to co-found this company? What brought you into this role? Sure. Um so I've been working in the banking industry for you know the better part of uh, a bit over 15 years now. And most of my work when I was at one of the larger banks was in the derivatives group. Now, the work that I did in the derivatives group wasn't you know um, what you would normally think. It was more, we were the counterparty to um, ETFs. So I've been working basically in ETFs since about 2007. And it was through that exposure that I got to work on a lot of cool things. My background, I went to school for math, stats, and economics, and then I did a graduate degree in in applied statistics and another one in uh, financial engineering. And so based on that, it it was a very quantitative background. And uh, so that's, you know, that's usually the roadmap to how you get hired on a derivatives desk. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so um, it was a great experience. I loved it. Um, I got to use a lot of the stuff that I learned in school, a lot of the stuff that I learned in the CFA, uh, which I also did. And, um, and really working across the bank with all kinds of different departments like accounting and middle office and back office and all these different departments that a lot of people outside of banking might not be familiar with. But when you're coming up with new and innovative types of derivatives um, that either the bank issues or that the bank's clients issue or it's wrapped as part of a greater package. Um, And so I spent a lot of time working on these kinds of products and it really engaged uh, the analytical part of my brain, but also the creative side of my brain. And so I loved the job and I loved what I was doing. In around 2016, I was um, I left the bank and I decided to take a bit of a sabbatical from Bay Street. So I decided to do a few things. The first thing was I had a bunch of family and friends who, over the years, they came to me asking for help and guidance on how to manage their own portfolios. Some of them were younger. They were just starting working and they had new money that they didn't quite know how to deploy or what kinds of accounts to set up. And then there were other friends and family who were older than me, who've had an advisor for many years, and they weren't happy with the value that they were getting from the advisor and the fees that they were paying. So they wanted to manage their own assets and they needed help getting started with that. So what I realized was despite the fact that I worked in a pretty complicated area of Bay Street working in derivatives, and I knew how a lot of these interesting uh, bespoke, funky investments worked, I found that what I was suggesting to people were these baskets of broad index, low fee ETFs. It was really simple to manage. Uh, this Again, this was around 2016, 2017. So Vanguard hadn't yet come out with their asset allocation ETFs. Yeah. So you kind of had to do this on your own. So, yeah. you know, what I suggested was, you know, you need equity ETFs, Canada, US, international, and you need some bond ETFs too, depending on you know, your age. And so coming up with these, you know, people call them model ETF portfolios, but uh, so um, that's what I was suggesting to people and it was great. And, and they were happy with it. So they were able to deploy it on their own. Um, and 
for a lot of people, they weren't quite sure how to enter orders and you know what's the difference between a market order and a limit order. So going through all that with them as well. Um, but what I would find was, you know, after six months, 12 months, 18 months, as these people had new money to invest, they would say, okay, well, what should I put it in now? And so the question wasn't so much on how do brokerage accounts work or, you know, what's an ETF? It came down to more asset allocation. And I tried to give guide posts and, you know, you know, here are some, you know, books you can read or blogs you can read or, you know, our own personal conversations. But I found that there was this insecurity around asset allocation. Um, now, it was around this time that Vanguard came out with its asset allocation ETFs and then followed mm -hmm. quickly by BMO and iShares as well. So, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, those are natural products to, to suggest that somebody buys, especially somebody who is not comfortable with a spreadsheet and doesn't want to figure out like what percentage of you know, Canadian equities do they have relative to everything else? These are great, you know, one-stop shop, buy and hold. You don't really have to think about it too much. Um, but again, you know, as, as great as those are, and those are really, really great products, uh, the question then arises, well, should I do be 80-20 or should I be 60-40 or should I own a little bit of both? Or like, maybe I should be 40-60 because I'm like really like not sure about the stock market at this time. Um, and so... It was over this period where I'm like, okay, there isn't a great, uh, I mean, asset allocation ETFs were a huge advancement, but what we needed was the final thing, especially when it came to retirement investing. And, you know, so people have all kinds of different goals, whether it's, you know, RS, uh, their children's education or saving for a down payment or, or, or a second home. Um, but the goal that most Canadians share you know, whether you're married or not, or whatever, regardless of your income or how many kids you have, is everybody wants to retire at some point. And that's a goal that everybody has. And there was no, um, no great product dedicated specifically for the goal of retirement investing. Uh, Canada does have target date mutual funds, but those are generally at a pretty high fee. I remember looking a while ago and the average MER on those was over 2%, sorry, the average wow. fee on those was over 2%. And so wow. that can significantly eat into your retirement nest egg. And so it was, it was based on that, you know, that Canadians need a one-stop shop for retirement investing. Not all Canadians need this. Some Canadians love to manage a portfolio of ETFs, or if they're higher net worth, they love managing a portfolio of stocks and bonds or whatever else. But I think for the majority of Canadians, what they really need is they just need something really simple that's going to be low fee that they will feel comfortable and confident that it'll do the job that it's supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I know, you know, uh, I've had lots of conversations with people over the years about, you know, just kind of what you shared, like pretty much, I mean, that's how I invest. I do Goring Index funds. And that's usually what I think is a good product for most people that don't, I mean, most Canadians, yeah, they just want something simple because they don't have time to be, you know, learning how to look at uh, stock charts or, you know, or, or getting into derivatives. I don't think most people need to do that to, to retire one day. But yeah, like you said, they're, where Canada is just slow to progress in terms of their offerings. It's so annoying for so many years looking at the States. I'm like, oh, they have all these, you know, products. And, and you know, they're the first to come out with robo-advisors and all these kinds of things. I'm like, oh, gosh, we always have to wait for things. So it was nice to see that 
you you also notice this and then you know came up with a solution because yeah i'm a big fan of asset allocation etfs but yeah they there are some things that will come up for example they are limited in that there's not that many um options in terms of asset allocation so one thing i see a lot of people do if they want to kind of customize it is um doing an all equity asset allocation etf and then adding in a you know couple bond etfs but then you're stuck with the rebalancing yourself and the spreadsheets and all that kind of stuff and it's also like i just want to kind of set it and forget it kind of thing and there really wasn't anything because even if you are in in the right asset allocation ETF for you, you still have to get out of it at a certain point to get into maybe something conser- more conservative as you get closer to your target date. So I guess that's kind of the the element that um, these target date ETFs have is the glide path. So I kind of want to talk about that because I get lots of questions about yeah. that. A lot of people that are maybe doing the DIY thing, they get stuck at that point. When do I know when to change You know the, the, the risk level of my portfolio? How do I know when it's the time? with these ETFs that you have at Evermore, they just do it automatically. So I'm curious, how did you determine when is the right time? How did you kind of build these glide paths for these ETFs? Sure. Okay. So I'm going to try to avoid any technical jargon when no, I no, do this. I but mean, you, my, it's okay to use technical jargon. We can yeah. just uh, translate it sure, <laughs> so people you, will know it. <laughs> you bet. So, um, okay. So it was a four-step process. So um, the first step was... Uh, well, I guess there was a zero. It's, uh, there was a, a <laughs> there was a step before the four steps, and that was yeah. figuring out. Um, and all these steps were not done in a linear fashion. They were kind of you know we'd do one, then we'd do another, then we'd go back because there was a lot of um, it, it was a bit cyclical or recursive. Um, but the first thing we did was what assets do we want to have in these funds? Do we want just stocks and just bonds, or do we want anything else? And we always had that in mind at every step in the process because um, because maybe we want to have something else. Um, maybe you know everything like, were you was on the table. Like gold and REITs and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah gold was on the table. Um, you know, short term bonds, inflation bonds. You know, even cryptocurrencies. Just for for sake of discussion, you know, I'm not going to say no to anything. Like let's let's talk it out. And uh, and so. And again, this was a bit recursive. So, you know, we had stuff and then we took stuff off the table. But uh, I mean, the only assets that we were really only seriously considering were broad index stocks, broad based bond ETFs, and also short term bonds, which we actually didn't end up including uh, for reasons that I can get into later. So, so that was really the first thing was, okay, we're going to have uh, equity exposure and fixed income exposure, and we're not going to have any uh, anything else for these products. Um, and then after that was okay. Well, geographic allocation. So within the equity component, how much Canada, how much U.S., how much international, how much emerging market, and the what we did there was we got as much data as we could. And there's a lot of really interesting diversification and correlation effects that can happen. So. Um, and what I'm talking specifically about here is something called mean variance optimization, which sounds really scary. But what it is, is for a given amount of risk, what's the combination of Canada, U.S., international and emerging market that will maximize my expected return? And some of these things correlate with each other. Um, you know, when some markets are up or experiencing above uh, normal returns, then other things might be you know, slightly below uh, their long-term average returns. And so you have this, uh, 
and these geographies aren't perfectly correlated. And so you can use that to your advantage. And that's the, the fact that different geographies aren't perfectly correlated is why diversification is so great. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so what we found doing that approach was that we ended up with 30% Canada, 45% US, 20% international, and 5% emerging market. And um, interestingly, we did this much after the fact, after we already settled on our portfolios, but we said, okay, well, for fun, let's look at the other asset allocation ETFs. Let's like, what did VEQT and XEQT and ZEQT do? And um, they all are, interestingly, it was really cool to see this, but they're all on what's called an efficient frontier. So for a given amount of risk, they're maximizing their returns. So they had obviously gone through the process themselves. Some have higher risk, higher return, and some are lower risk, lower return. And where ours came in was pretty close to where Vanguard's happened to be. And so that's where we landed on the equity one. Then on the fixed income side, it was the same thing. So what are, what's the universe of combinations of Canada, US international and emerging markets that are efficient portfolios? And then also, which efficient portfolio um, has the least correlation or is maybe negatively correlated to stocks? Because, you know, the purpose of the bond component, uh, we can talk about like the purpose of the stock and the bond components, which is itself interesting when we talk about the glide path. But we wanted the fixed income part to be as negatively correlated as possible to the stocks. You want it to kind of dampen out any sort of equity volatility or equity yeah. downside you want your bonds to be up, which hasn't mm -hmm. been happening this year. Kind of a, a, a different experience than usual, uh -huh. but still in the long run, that typically happens. And so what yes. we found was that combination, 60% Canada, 30% US, 10% international, and interestingly, 0% emerging market. Um, and I think part of that reason is that emerging market bonds tend to sell off during an equity sell-off. They're more risk instruments. So... So that's how we landed on our uh, geographical allocations within equities and within fixed income. Then the next part, and again, this was all iterative and sometimes you know, uh, we might go back a few steps, but the next part was figuring out, okay, what's the glide path? This was, you know, this is the thing. So what we did here was, uh, there's something called Monte Carlo simulation, which is just basically running a whole bunch of simulations now, simulations are generally only as good as the inputs that you put in. And so we did this for a whole bunch of different inputs. And our inputs or assumptions were, I'd classify them into two different categories. One is capital markets assumptions. So what's the expected return for each of these now seven different sub-asset classes, Canadian equity, US equity, et cetera. Um, what's their expected volatility and how do they correlate with one another? So that's one set of assumptions. And then we looked at uh, personal or investor assumptions. So, you know, what's the starting salary of a person and their ending salary over time? What percentage of their gross income are they saving in retirement? How long are they living or how long are they working for? And then how long are they living in retirement? What's their replacement ratio or how much of their how much are they drawing down over time? What's the inflation rate? Um, things of that nature. So. So using that, the, you know, the personal investor characteristics, and then using the capital market assumptions, using that, we tested um, a bit over 10,000 different possible glide paths. And so every time we ran a set of assumptions, we'd run 10,000 different glide paths to see, and then we'd kind of, we'd rank them, 
and kind of get an idea of which kind of glide paths are better and which are worse. And what do I mean by better and worse? For us, the most important thing is not outliving your nest egg. That's got to be the number one thing. And so if you're, if you have like, let's say, let's take the extreme where you're a hundred percent in bonds, you're probably over the course of working for say 40 years, you're not going to grow your portfolio enough to get to that point where you have enough to last throughout your retirement. So being too conservative could be detrimental to your, your retirement. You, you might outlive your money. The same thing with you know, being 100% equity 100% of your life, same thing. You might grow your portfolio to be a great amount or, or maybe not, but then you run the risk of, um, of drawing down your portfolio too quickly, especially if there's um, a pullback in the equity market as you begin retirement. You know, if, if you had the misfortune of being 100% equity uh, in 2020 and the market's down 30%, um, now you're cashing out a huge portion of your portfolio, right? So, so you need to be somewhere between those two extremes. Now, maybe going back to why stocks are important and why bonds are important. So stocks are great because they have higher long-term expected returns. And in fact, as, you, as your time horizon increases 20, 30, 40 years, um, it's pretty, it's, they're actually less risky in the very long run. So in a given year, stocks could be up or down 40%. Uh, you see these wild swings. And over two years, maybe they're up 25% or down 25% or somewhere in the middle. But as you kind of zoom out and you look at you know, how stocks done over any 20 or 30 or 40 year period, it's generally pretty consistently around 9 or 10%. Um, it depends on the geography, but in the US and even in Canada, it's pretty much the same. Now, bonds, on the other hand, bonds kind of have a different... Uh, risk return profile in the short term and in the long term. And so for growing your nest egg, they're not that great. They do dampen volatility and they do actually help to mitigate some behavioral tendencies that investors have. So, you know, when markets are down and if you're 100% stocks, you might be slightly more likely to be like, I'm out of here, I'm cashing out. Yeah. And to mm-hmm. the extent that you have any bonds, it's just your portfolio is down less than what you see on TV. <laughs> And so you feel a little like, okay, we could ride out this wave. This is okay. I'm yeah. not going to freak out. Yeah, yeah. That's right. <laughs> and then as you approach retirement, you need to increase your weight to bonds and decrease your weight to equities. Um, just because if you have, um, it reduces your overall portfolio volatility, which is important when you enter into the drawdown period or the decumulation period of your life cycle. And you're in retirement and now you need to draw down a, on your portfolio holdings to to fund your retirement. And so high level, I mean, that's why a glide path is important. Now, at what rate do you glide and when do you start gliding and when do you level off? This is where all that Monte Carlo simulation came in handy. So again, over 10,000 different glide paths. We'd run it for one set of scenarios, then we'd tweak some assumptions, run it again, look at that output, rank them. What are the characteristics of the glide paths that work? And so in the end, you know, we ran all kinds of different um, scenarios and all kinds of different capital market scenarios and all kinds of saving, uh, saving ratios while you're working and then spending in retirement, variable retirement. So, you know, not just the 4% rule or fixed dollar amount, but maybe it's a function of how equity markets work. And what we found was 
there were um, the glide path that we eventually settled on was a glide path that worked well under most reasonable sets of assumptions. It doesn't. It's not the best one under all assumptions. I don't think you know. Having done the work, there is no optimal glide path under every single scenario. But the one that we landed on worked really well for many different sets of assumptions. And so that's why we landed on the glide path that we did. And then the fourth stage, which again was kind of iterative, was security selection. So which ETFs do we actually hold for Canadian equity, US equity, and so on? Yeah, well, I, I, that was going to be my next question because, you know, so you, the, the, the portfolios that you created for these funds, they're a mix of, you know, Vanguard, iShares and uh, BMO. And I always kind of, yeah, look at other like people's model portfolios. And I'm, I'm always so curious, like, why did you choose Vanguard over iShares or BMO is always the one for bonds? Why is that? And so I'm curious when you're making those selections, what, yeah, what was the kind of the, the logic or research behind that? Sure. So it was really tough. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> there are they're a lot... similar. They're very similar ETFs. Oh, so I'm... that's people get stuck. They're like, I don't know which one should I choose. I'm like, it honestly probably won't make or break your life. So, <laughs> oh, completely. Yeah. So we were really getting into the weeds on these ones. Um, I mean, first of all, there were all kinds of ETFs that we could easily exclude. So, right. Um, which ones? Um, well, anything that was actively managed generally came up with a higher fee. And if they're actively managed, I mean, there's all kinds of research that shows that those types of products generally don't outperform uh, index-based ETFs. Um, I mean, they might in one or two years, but in the long run, and that's what our portfolios are built for, um, we needed something that would be robust over decades. And so, you know, our, our universe was limited to Canadian, well, uh, maybe I'll get into that in a sec, but low-fee, broad-based ETFs. Uh, we did a lot of work on you know, large cap versus all cap, and we found that um, on a risk-adjusted basis and in terms of you know, diversification, that we preferred the all cap versus large cap. Um, so Do you want to kind of explain what that means? Just oh, yeah. That <laughs> sure. So, so large cap, cap is capitalization. It's how big a company is. So large cap refers to the biggest companies in a country. Um, all cap is all companies within a country. Within a country. So um, the TSX 60 is a large cap index. It's the 60 biggest companies in Canada. And um, XIU, which is an iShares ticker, it's the oldest ETF in the world, actually. Um, it's, it's based on this index, the TSX 60. Um, iShares also has an ETF XIC, which is based on the TSX composite index, which is, um, the, I think, 240 biggest companies in Canada, around 230, 240. Um, to, so for what you get for that fee, you get access to 240 different companies. They're market cap weighted, which is generally the most... Uh, it's the easiest approach in terms of portfolio management, so less fees on that. Um, and over the long run, they do, you know, they do pretty well. So, um, so we decided to go with the all cap versus the large cap, um, partly because of, uh, mostly because of the diversification, and also the risk return profile was slightly better. And I think that ties into the diversification. You have exposure to 240 companies instead of 60 companies. And 
you know, to provide a few historical examples of why that's preferable, you know, you've had instances where you've had these Canadian companies over time that have been, you know, the biggest company in Canada. There's that whole thing about it's a curse to be the big, unless you're Royal Bank or TD, it's a curse to be the biggest. And so if you're, if you're in the large cap index, which has exposure to the 60 largest, you're more at risk to those companies than if you're in the composite index or a comparable index to the composite that has exposure to more companies. Um, and so we just felt that that was a more prudent measure to take. Um, another interesting thing was, do we want the ETF to be Canadian listed or US listed? And so this revolves around the whole concept of withholding tax. And so withholding tax um, on an ETF that has a higher dividend yield, it's more important to consider than um, if an ETF has no dividend yield, then you don't really care. But what withholding tax is, is if you have a foreign ETF or it holds foreign uh, securities, then you know, it depends on the country, but we have a tax treaty with the US. Canada has a tax treaty with the US that 15% of dividends are withheld, um, depending on certain things, but not in all cases. So for example, if you own, um, uh, if you own VOO or IVY or SPY, those are three large S&P 500 ETFs that are domiciled in the US. If you own those in a registered account, like an RSP or a RIF, then you don't have any withholding tax. If you hold those in a non-registered, you get withheld, but you might be able to get a foreign tax credit to get that back a year later. And if you hold them in your TFSA or even RESP, you just pay the 15% and you never see that again. And so it was important to us as well because um, our funds would face withholding tax. And you only want to have, so you can have one layer of withholding or you could have two layers of withholding. And so this speaks to maybe why we chose the BMO one. So BMO is a Canadian listed ETF which directly owns um, emerging market stocks directly. And for for the fee that BMO charges, I don't think that there was anything that was better in Canada that did that. There were ETFs that had cheaper, that had lower management expense ratios, lower fees that were listed in Canada. But in those cases, they wrapped a US product that, that held the emerging market stocks. And so when you factor in withholding tax, it was less ideal. And um, then on the, so, it was a combination of fees, withholding tax, liquidity was also a consideration. So, I mean, there are some um, there are some newer products that haven't been around for a while that are also index-based equity ETFs, or um, but they just don't trade as often and um, arguably less liquid. And so, another factor with our products are only going to be as liquid as their underlying. So if we choose very liquid, low-fee underlyings, then that reduces the bid-ask spread on our ETFs as well. Um, so that's, um, I, I might have skipped a bit, but uh, that's pretty no, high-level how we chose our ETFs. But you're no, right. That's, that's super helpful. That's there, super helpful. Yeah. There isn't a lot of daylight between these ETFs. And so I think if you're choosing for yourself, you know, which of an iShares or Vanguard or BMO ETF to choose. I mean, you're getting really nitty gritty. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of online resources where you can find out what's best for you for what type of account and for what purpose. Mm -hmm. But no, even you just uh, saying it, I feel like a lot of people don't realize this, that certain um, 
Canadian listed ETFs that give you exposure to the U.S. stock market, for example, I think a lot of people just assume it's a Canadian company that bought these U.S. stocks and then put them in their own ETF. But no, a lot of them just uh, actually just have a U.S. ETF in there and that U.S. ETF owns those stocks. So it's important, I think, for people if they're you know, want to do this on their own or just do their own research just to get more familiar with how these products are constructed is to look on those websites and see, okay, what's the holdings? Oh, there's one holding. Oh, it's one other ETF. And then you can look at that, you know? So I think it's one of those things where it's like most people have no idea. They just, I mean, especially I feel like I've been spending a lot more time on Instagram and people just like loving to make recommendations in a 15 second you know, whatever real or TikTok or something like that. And yeah. you're like, buy these ETFs. And you're like, whoa, whoa, <laughs> let's unpack that. That's right. <laughs> Which is why I love having the podcast because we can actually unpack it. <laughs> exactly. can talk for a while and actually explain how these things are. So I think that's, no, that's super helpful. Um, now, the other question I guess I get from people that are looking at your, your funds, because I love the idea that it's like kind of a one-stop shop. You literally can be start invest it in it, you know, at 25 and continue to be invested in that same fund until you retire or even and, and throughout retirement. So it's very simple. But I guess I think a lot of people are scared of something too simple. <laughs> what would you say to that? Because, you know, investing is supposed to be complicated and hard, isn't it? That's why only the rich can be, you know, super savvy when it comes to investing. But what, you know, what's do you get any concerns from people who are like, oh, I'm thinking of investing in these ETFs, but I'm just not sure about them? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess what I hear the most is I, I, I do understand the need for people to feel like they need to do something complicated for it to be good. Um, in investing, it's completely the opposite. Usually the simplest approach can be like a really good approach. I'm hesitant to say the best, but it can get you most of the way to being the best approach. And if somebody's arguing for something more complicated, they would really need to persuade me with data more than emotion that that's the case, right? And, um, but yeah, I hear you. I think for some people, they crave simplicity. There are a lot of people out there who are just like, I just want to buy the, you know, the one thing, tell me one thing that I need to do. And I just want to buy the one thing. And I've, I've heard that directly from, you know, friends and family when I was, again, helping and suggesting what types of things they invest in. And certainly the asset allocation ETFs were great for that. I mean, you know, you just, you know, you just say, just buy VBAL. And every time, you know, every time you have a little bit more money, buy VBAL. And every time you need money, just sell a little VBAL. Um, so it was, um, so some people crave the simplicity. And then I guess there are two types of people who crave something more complicated. Um, one type are the people who have a lot of experience doing this sort of thing. And it's a hobby for them and they derive personal enjoyment from it. And it's a form of entertainment and it's, you know, they get to exercise their analytical part and their creative part and it can be really fulfilling it can be really stressful it can be an emotional roller coaster but um it's um and so for those people i mean they're gonna do it and and that's fine as long as you know uh, i hope that the people who are trading like that um have their own personal guidelines and they you know i'm not gonna do this with more than 10 percent of my portfolio or, or whatever and and stick to that no matter what um it can be really tempting if you're on a winning streak to maybe let a position ride, you know, especially if you do really well on one thing and now you're more than 10% exposed. Uh, it might be a really good opportunity to, you know, collect some profits and to bring your, you know, bring it back so that 90% of your investments are in the low fee diversified ETFs. Um, 
But then there's the group of people who they don't know a lot about investing and they feel like, okay, if I'm doing it too simple, I'm doing something wrong. Um, and those are the people, it's hardest to reach those people um, and, and to get the messaging out there. Um, I think that, you know, there's a lot of people talking about this, but I feel like we're almost talking to each other in an echo bubble. Um, I know. And that we need to. <laughs> I know what like, you mean. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's the same people talking the same conversation with themselves. And it's, I mean, that's why a podcast like yours is so great is that it's helping spread this message of sometimes doing the easy, uh, the simpler approach is really the best approach because the more you complicate things, the more you increase the potential for higher fees or higher taxes or making mistakes or incurring losses. And um, so I really hope if there's one takeaway from this podcast that your listeners have, it's that simpler and easier is usually better. And that doesn't mean staying in cash or, and it doesn't mean just being a hundred percent in, you know, in an equity ETF. Um, Sometimes simpler is something in between. Yeah. No, I'm I'm curious what your thoughts are or or if you've had conversations with people as we kind of, you know, experienced a big uh, um, bull run um, since the the crash in in 2020. And then everyone felt like they were, you know, rock stars being so smart, investing in anything and earning a really high return. And now into 2022, things are shifting. People are talking about a recession. This is very triggering for me as a millennial who went through the Great Recession. I'm like, oh, gosh, now here we are again. (laughs) But now I'm in my 30s and I've got actual capital here and uh, seeing uh, the red in my portfolio. Um, I'm curious what kind of, uh, you know, things would you say to people that are, because I I feel like a lot of people put a lot of money into the market in 2021 because, or or 2020 and 2021, because it it looked like everyone was making money. Now I'm I'm hearing a lot more fear from people. They're afraid to start investing or to continue investing. They're thinking of hitting pause because again, it is it kind of it is irrational, but it is cycle. It's the 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 psychology of money, really. Where we, if we think things are going down, we don't want to participate because we we're afraid of losing our money. Even though this is actually the best part, the best time to start investing or contribute to your investments to grow over time. But I'm mean, I'm curious what what are your kind of thoughts on that, or yeah. what what did you say to someone who's uh, terrified to to keep on investing or start invas- investing right now? Yeah, I mean it's it can be terrifying. Um... all the things that you said are true. It can be terrifying. And also it is the best time. It's funny how investing is so different than other things. Like, um, you know, the month before Christmas, you have all these sales and you have Black Friday and Cyber Monday where everything's 20, 30% off. And, And people like literally stampede and kill each other running into Walmarts to get the thing that's 20 or 30% off. And, you know, the one place that nobody's doing that in is in financial markets. So, you know, bonds have had their biggest pullback in arguably decades. And and people are saying bonds are dead. I mean, I, I would argue bonds have never been more alive. <laughs> or, you know, it's it's been a while. I mean, the yield to maturities are, uh, or what the expected return is if you were to invest right now is well over 3% in some areas. Whereas, you know, just six months ago, it, in some areas, it was less than 1%. So what you expect to make off bonds is is better than it has been in years. Um, and then same with stocks. I mean, every time stocks pull back, I mean, 
what would you rather? Would you have rather bought them six months ago or would you rather buy them now? I mean, I would rather own them now. Now, had you bought them six months ago, um, think about it as if you didn't have a position on right now. Would you want to own them right now? And I would, I would think for most people, the answer is yes. To back up a bit, there, we've had what's happening right now in markets has happened numerous times and it happens almost with clockwork precision. I mean, sometimes it happens out of nowhere, the COVID thing happened out of nowhere. Um, but you know, with, you can almost count on a large market pullback every 10 years. You can't time it. And I'm not suggesting anybody set their clock to it. Um, but, but it happens. And when you look at the long run trajectory of, you know, the S&P 500 or the Dow Jones Industrial Index or any of these equity indices that have been around for decades, what you see is, I mean, you can't time the market. So you don't know when the bottom is or when the top is. But if you just bought and held, pick any time prior to, you know, starting from 10 years or going backwards, is there any time where you would have bought, you know, think about, oh, I'm going to botch the wording on this, but... Um, is there any time that you would have wished that you hadn't invested? Like, you know, there, there were recessions in the early 70s. If you were to buy at the top of the market right before then and held until now, I mean, you'd be set. So Yeah, I, you'd be wealthy. Yeah, and, and the, same, <laughs> the same can be said for even going into the great financial crisis of 2008. Yeah. I mean, had you bought at the top of that market and held until mm -hmm. now, you'd still be up significantly. And so yeah. what I would argue is, you know, the way these things have worked over time is that, you know, if you bought at the top of the, the most recent top, which would have been in the fall or early January of, uh, of this year, in 10 years, you'll be happy that you did. Um, and so if you buy, if you get into the market right now, and again, like low fee diversified, picking stocks can be dangerous. But if you buy an index based product that's low fee in 10 years from now, you should, I, I would expect that you'd be very happy that you did. Yeah, I agree. And I think just people need to sometimes hear it <laughs> again and again. <laughs> right? This isn't anything. I feel like a lot of the stuff that I talk about on the show, it's like nothing's really changed. I've been doing the shows for seven years and this information is still pretty much the same. And for me, that should that gives me comfort. I hopefully it gives uh, listeners comfort that investing does not have to be that complicated. And like you said, we've seen ups and downs in the, the market. We've had recessions uh, before and it is kind of like clockwork almost every 10 years. So that should also give you comfort that there's a little bit of a predictability to it. It's not it's not always, wow, we've never seen this before. It's like, it's always a little bit different, but it's also kind of the same, same, but different <laughs> is what I like to call yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And, it, and it's true. I mean, like if the market were only going up by, you know, 10, 15, 20% every year, that's not healthy either. I mean, economies don't grow that quickly. There's no reason why the stock market should grow that quickly either. And um, so to have these pullbacks, it's just a natural feature of the stock market. It happens. And it, like you said, it happens roughly every 10 years. I mean, maybe it's happened a little bit more frequently in recent history for different reasons, but it's going to happen. And when it happens, um, I mean, like I said, it's impossible to time the market. So I, you know, one of the best things that people can do is it's called dollar cost averaging, but it's just making regular contributions to your RSP or TFSA or just saving a little bit of every paycheck and trying to squirrel that money away and invest it. And, you know, don't hoard it in cash waiting for, 
the best time because usually the best time will be when everybody's happy again about how stock markets are doing. And that's probably going to be when it's back at or close to all time highs. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, I, I hope this gives, uh, yeah, some, some comfort and also some really helpful information to, uh, to listeners, especially anyone who's freaking out or, or is thinking about investing and isn't sure if right now is the, the best time or if they're, they are invested and they, I, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to. They're like, I started investing in December and everything's down and I feel like I'm an idiot. I did it wrong. It's like, no, no, no. Don't look at the short term. Remember, you're in this for the long term, especially when you're investing for a goal like retirement. So just be patient. As someone, I I feel like I can also confidently say that as someone who's been investing her money since I think the age of 24, and now I'm 36. It's like I've seen a lot of ups and downs, and the best thing I can say is to never not be investing. Just keep on doing it. Yeah, <laughs> no <right>. matter what. <laughs> and if somebody started in December, and if they're still adding to their investments yeah. now, then you know they're averaging down, which you know, in the long run, I think they'll be okay. Just hold the course. And, you know, that's what a lot of, you know, the asset allocation ETFs and our target date funds, they help you stay the course and, you know, you stick to your plan better, um, especially if you're not trading individual stocks. It's much easier to stick to the plan when you're just holding one thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Myron, for, for being on the show. Um, where can people find more information? I know you guys have a, a great website, but I really like your YouTube channel as well, because you've got some great short videos that go more in depth about some uh, key things that people should know about investing. So yeah, can you tell me where people can find more info? Yeah, sure. So we're at evermore.ca. Um, our ETFs are called the Evermore Retirement ETFs. Um, and um, so, and like you, you can buy them how? Like, oh, yeah. You know, so, we're like, do I go through Evermore or how do I yeah, get these? But yeah. We actually get that question a lot, which is great because, I mean, those are the questions that we get from the people who we really want to try to help are the people who are brand new to investing and don't know where to start. And they're the ones who need this product almost more than anybody else. And so, we've been getting that question a lot. They're like, okay, like, you know, can I go to your website and buy them? And actually, no, it's, it's the same as with any other ETF. So if you have a, a brokerage account or a direct investing account, um, all of the major banks have them. There are some independent ones like uh, Quest Trade or Well Simple Trade. Um, you can buy them there. Um, we have our tickers are on our website. So again, evermore.ca. We have eight different ETFs right now, uh, ranging if you're planning to retire around 2025 around 2030, 35, 40, all the way up to 2060. So um, find the fund that you think might be right for you. It's really easy to choose. I mean, it's just based on when do you expect to retire? And so for me, you know, I expect to retire, you know, I'm turning 65 in 2044, so I might buy the 2045s. And so I just buy that ETF from my own RSP. And again, they're just for the goal of retirement. They're not for the goal of um, you know, saving for a vacation or even for uh, children's education. We didn't design them like that. We designed them, you know, going back to all that computer simulation that we did. It was about really maximizing your chances of um, having enough uh, of a retirement nest egg so that you don't outlive it. And um, so with that, I'm curious, would you build a product for like uh, college funds, RESPs? Um, maybe in the future, maybe, maybe in the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but for now, I mean, I think the goal that again, that all Canadians share is, uh, retiring one day and it's, mm -hmm. and target date funds are a thing that have existed for a long time. They just haven't existed in ETF format in Canada yeah. and not at such a low fee. So for us, this was the easiest way to get started. And, um, so yeah, some more information at evermore.ca, you can find our tickers there and you can purchase ETFs 
through your uh, direct investing or brokerage account. Amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. I think you shared uh, so much helpful information to uh, everybody. And it was a pleasure having you on. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks so much, Jessica. It was really nice being on. And that was episode 345 with Myron Genick from uh, Evermore Capital. You can find more information about uh, them at evermore.ca and to follow them on Twitter at Evermore ETFs and Instagram at Evermore ETFs as well. Not only that, I actually did make a video about um, their ETFs in the spring. So if you go to my YouTube channel, jessicamorehouse.com slash YouTube or just Google Jessica Morehouse within YouTube you will be able to find that video and also all my other videos. FYI, I have a YouTube channel as well um, that, you know, a bit different than the podcast. I don't interview people. It's usually just about a single topic and I kind of go in depth about it, um, but I am uh, working on growing it and putting out more videos. So make sure to hit that up find me, subscribe, let me know what kind of topics you want me to cover in future videos. I would really appreciate it. Now, uh, I've got a few things to share as always, so don't go away. Here's just a few words I want to share about this season's podcast sponsor. This episode of the More Money Podcast is supported by Desjardins. Do you feel valued at your financial institution? Because Desjardins is on a mission to enrich the lives of Canadians, help build stronger communities, and educate its members so they can confidently reach their financial goals. Not only do they offer one-of-a-kind customer care and offer a variety of financial services to fit your needs, as a cooperative, they put their members first. So if you're looking for an institution that's making an impact, look no further than Desjardins. To learn more about Desjardins and how they're making a difference, visit at Desjardins.com. Okay, so things I want to share with you. Just a reminder, I'm giving away a ton of books, six currently, and I will be adding to the pile uh, before the uh, season closes out in mid-December or late December. Um, so if you go to jessicamorehouse.com slash contest, you can also find that link if you forget what it is in the show notes for this episode, jessicamorehouse.com slash 345. Also, FYI, if you're ever trying to find more details about a particular episode, you can find the show notes, all the shows for every single episode at jessicamorehouse.com slash podcast. That is where you can find them. Um, so currently I'm giving away a copy of Becoming Superwoman by Nicole Lappin, The Bogle Effect by Eric Valchunas, Seen, Heard, and Paid by Alan Henry, Untying the Knot by Kelly Lavalie, Dump Your Degree by Zakia Accarelli, and the recent book that's been added to the giveaway is Cashflow Cookbook by Gordon Stein, and it's the Canadian edition I'm giving away, but it is available also in an American edition if you're interested. So make sure to check out jessicamorehouse.com slash contest to enter to win one of those books. Another thing I want to share, because I think I may have mentioned this on the podcast, or at least if you're on my newsletter, which again, you can find and you know sign up to, to, to get my newsletter, jessicamorehouse.com slash subscribe. Um, I think I mentioned I had the idea in my head that I would love to do another event. Now that we're you know, pretty much out of the woods. I mean, though you look at the news and you're just, you know, it's always bad news. Um, I thought it would be safe to do another, uh, you know, event. You know, I have had my Millennial Money Meetup series. I started that in 2016 and we're in 2022, for goodness sakes. And I thought it'd be fun. Um, but, you know, I had the idea and then realized I really just don't have enough time to like put on a really awesome event before, you know, the holidays. And that's when, you know, it's just a, a terrible time to actually do your own events. So not going to happen this 
fall. With that said, um, I'm hoping that I will be able to do a live event in the new year, whether it's probably not the winter. No one wants to go out of the house in the winter. I certainly don't. Maybe next spring. So so something's going to happen at some point, um, but I'm just going to maybe do a better job of planning it in advance. I'm probably also going to rebrand it because when I kind of did a, a poll on Instagram and on my newsletter to say, hey, would you be interested in coming to one of my events? And I did say, you know, one of my other, you know, millennial money meetups, would you be interested? A lot of people emailed me and be like, oh, I'm not a millennial, but I'd love to come. And I'm like, well, I don't want people to feel like they can't come because they're not a millennial. Like the, the reason I gave it that title was just to attract millennials, but not to detract or, you know, to, I'm not going to kick you out if you're not a millennial. I, I just thought it was just a branding tool. It was just, I thought it was like, oh, just so, you know, millennials can come to the event and everyone else too. So I think I might rebrand the event to, I don't know what, but I don't know, maybe like more money events or something. I don't know. We'll see. But um, yeah, just, just giving you some info about that in case you're wondering whatever happened with that event that I talked about. Um, yeah. Uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? Um, yeah, I've just been honestly, trying to um, catch up on work after spending like a whole month studying and kind of avoiding um, a bunch of stuff. Um, budget spreadsheets, they're, they're, they're coming. There's a few more available on my website, jessicmorehouse.com slash shop. So you can find the updated versions of my budget spreadsheets. I've also been releasing some more videos on my YouTube channel, jessicmorehouse.com slash YouTube is where you can find that and check out all my new videos. But yeah, I cannot believe that we are already. <laughs> How did, wasn't it just summer and now it's mid-November, which means it's basically Christmas. You know what I mean? Like this time is just flying by way too quickly. But yeah, but yeah. So anyways, that's really all I've got going on at the moment, but I'm sure I'll have more things to uh, share with you later in a future episode. Uh, teasing next week, I've got Emily Guy Birkin on the show. She, if you're, if you're kind of familiar with like the personal finance space, <laughs> uh, she's been around for a while. I've known uh, of her for a while because she's a very well-known freelance writer, but also has written a couple several books. And two of her most recent books uh, we're going to be chatting about in next week's episode. Um, she, her, she has a book called The Five Years Before You Retire and also Stacked Your Super Serious Guide to modern money management. So you're going to love that. And then just to give you a reference point after Emily, we've got one, two, three, four, four more episodes, four more episodes. <laughs> and then we're wrapping it up until the new year. How, how does the year go by so quickly like that? I do not like that at all. Nope. Nope. Don't like that. Don't like it at all. Nope. 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 But you know, that's life and you just got to deal with it. You just got to... I mean, there's nothing you could do. You can't stop time. If I could, I would. Anywho, um, everything's fine. Thank you so much for listening uh, to this episode. A big shout out to my podcast editor, Matt Rideout. And I'll see you back here next Wednesday for that episode with Emily Guy Birkin. I hope you have an amazing rest of your week and weekend. Stay safe and warm and, you know, budgeting. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, I'll see you back here next Wednesday. This podcast is distributed by the Women in Media Podcast Network. Find out more at womeninmedia.network.